your weekly look at the big issues in defense and world affairs. This time, we're wargaming. How did you do this? Okay. Through mass physical messaging, drops leaflets. I mean, I'm warning and hitting them at the same time. Right, so, so that's the carrot and stick approach. From card games you can play in minutes to multi-tabletop exercises that could last days, we explain how war games work, their potential and limitations as a deadly serious tool for our armed forces. From the sub-tactical to the uber-strategic, we're expanding defence's capacity to deliver such war games to help us understand problems and fundamentally make better decisions on behalf of defence. One of the officers leading that effort to grow British Wargaming is with us to talk about how it's already used and what the future may hold. And a leading Wargames researcher explains how they can help us learn lessons from the past. The research question around the game was basically, could the military have fixed what happened in Iraq? And I can say, both times we did it, it did not get better. It actually got much worse. Zidrev with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Mike, you never fail to surprise me. Every time I think we've come up with something that might stump you a little bit, you prove me wrong. And now I find out your first ever book was about wargaming. Oh, yes, it was many years ago. Uh, it wasn't a very good book, but it was, it was what I was <laughs> writing about, the, my experiences, because I was involved in the early war games at the University of Aberystwyth, as it then was, uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And if we come right up to date, what got us thinking about wargaming was something you've mentioned a few times, the Pentagon Tiger team, which is trying to stay several steps ahead of what's happening in Ukraine. Is that essentially a big wargaming outfit? Uh, it is now, yes. I mean, they, they uh, simulate everything. They started with the Ukraine war. They say, you know, what, what will we do if the Russians use chemical weapons? What will they do if they go nuclear? What will they do if they do this? And they try every scenario so that as and when something happens, they can give the president or the Pentagon chiefs some options. So they're wargaming lots of different scenarios, not to, not to predict them, but just to look at what the options might be. And recently, of course, the Tiger team has been on the Israeli issue on the, the Gaza war. So they're working with this thing called the, the Israel Significant Initiatives Group, uh, the ISIG, and they meet on a daily basis to go through the supply of material to Israel and all the problems that it might cause. So they're trying to scenario plan all the different options so that they can give their bosses some uh, some sensible choices and not to be taken by surprise. Well, in UK defence, wargaming is a growth area, something that Rear Admiral Andrew Betton, the UK's Director of Joint Warfare at Strategic Command, spoke to us about at the last DSEI Defence Industry Exhibition. We are responsible for the coordination of experimentation activity across defence and a key part of experimentation is wargaming. How we test concepts, we test different tactics. Wargaming is a really um, varied tool, it means different things to different people. Uh, it can be used in the field, uh, it can be used in head office and everywhere in between. There are all sorts of different tools from the traditional board-based, card-based games uh, through tabletop exercises into simulator simulation enabled uh, far more complex high fidelity war games uh, we're expanding defense's capacity uh, to deliver such war games and really what i want to get after is the culture of war gaming in defense it becomes uh, habitual we're war gaming every day and at all levels 
Well, with us on SITREP is Captain Eugene Morgan. He's Assistant Head of Defence Wargaming within the Directorate of Joint Warfare. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, your boss just explained the thinking. We're really glad to have you here to explain the doing of war games in UK Armed Forces. When and how in your career did you first get hands-on with wargaming? Oh, right from the very start, I think. Um, understanding how as a naval officer, how platforms, how formations and units would actually operate together is something that we did right at the early days. And how many people serving in the forces and at what kind of level do they actually get to take part in war games? Well, as the Admiral mentioned, you know, wargaming is a tool and a technique that runs right from the very earliest engagement in military planning right the way through to to the work that head office is doing in terms of strategic force development so many of many people most people will have had some degree of engagement with wargaming even if they don't actually understand that it is wargaming it'll be about testing coas uh, analyzing options and then being able to make some judgment and evidence upon those decisions that they that they take so it's pervasive but that's not exactly what we are trying to achieve with the programme that the Admiral mentioned. Well, we'll talk more with Mike and Eugene in a moment, but we wanted to give you a little taste of what wargaming is at its very simplest level. SITREP's James Hurst has been trying it out. Uh, James, where did you go and what did you get up to? Uh, so I went back to university for the first time in 30 years, which was interesting. Uh, King's College London, and I joined a seminar uh, with students who were studying war game design. And what we did, as you say, it's the most basic level, we played a, a card game called POP, Powers of Persuasion. Mm. This is actually designed by the UK's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, and it, it is a war game about strategic communication. So it works in a really simple way. Uh, there's a card for everybody at the start which sets out your shared mission. So in this case, it was to persuade the local population not to join the insurgency. And then it's literally a case of picking up one card and, and dropping another each turn to try and get a set of things that, that make a communication strategy. You need what your message is, how you deliver it, and, and who or what delivers it. So maybe you want to go hardball, your message is insurgents get killed, and you deliver that with artillery fire, you need forces on the ground to do that. Or you might go the hearts and minds route, saying, you know, we'll keep you safe from insurgents. You deliver that message via social media, and you can, you know, use people in the UK to do that, or maybe technology on the ground. So I tried this out with three of the students, Andrea, Arthur and Thomas, under the supervision of their wargaming lecturer, Dr David Banks. Well um, I'll just put one card, I guess. Now, this is a game about strategic communication because it's a really good way of representing the seemingly unrepresentable. So you have to craft together this strategic communication, both what it is you're saying, I'm threatening you with violence, or in this case I will alleviate third party suffering, who's delivering that message, and what's the means by which they're delivering it. So we're trying to stop the local population joining the insurgency. Okay. Yes. So we call it wargaming, and I'm, you know, the academic director of the King's Wargaming Network. This is the professional term. It, you know, the other terms you'll sometimes see as serious games or conflict simulation. So, you know, we use the term recognizing that for a lot of people, they assume we're talking about kinetic warfare, um, but that's not a necessary condition at all. So that's like who we're targeting, more or less. Right. So, like the enemy red team, if that makes sense. Right, okay. And we're trying to basically make them sorry, but... 
for me, the core thing is, is, is there some form of opposed play, human players opposed to each other or opposed to the game? Um, and, uh, you know, is it representing something that's about conflict? But a conflict could be who's going to, you know, allocate resources to this hospital, right? It doesn't have to be who's going to actually destroy this target. Yeah, I know there's like one card I'm looking for oh, that right. I've seen in the like, last round, uh, and it's like, uh, I'm not getting that. Uh, that's, yeah, I'll do this. So. I suppose that reflects the, the, the reality of, you know, you know what you want to do, but you can't always, you don't always necessarily have the time or the... Yeah, or the ability to do it, yeah. I quite like that within the game, like restricting what you can do. Games are very good at introducing the concept of trade-offs and a well-designed game will make players make trade-offs. And so they'll actually understand that, oh, you know what, it's not so easy. I can't get that one. You can only get the top one. Hmm, I see. You can always draw first and then discard. So if you might find that by yeah. drawing a card, you might prefer. See, I've just changed my mind halfway through about how I'm doing yeah, the whole like, thing. Yeah, you've yeah. changed. You're restructuring your whole strategy. Yeah. It's got a lot going on for a game in which you can draw cards or say I intervene. You've got concepts of audiences, messages, different scenarios, lots of different tools at your disposal. Actually, I might drop this, grab this one, and I think I'm placing my uh, strategy down. Gonna go with my three. Okay. Okay. I give up. Go for it. Uh, so I think it can deliver a lot of different things, right? So I mean, one thing it can deliver is an experience, right? And I, you know, a game I've designed that I've used for years in my classroom is about the July crisis of 1914. And my students are taking a diplomacy course and they're learning a lot about bargaining and information and all these kinds of things. And, and, and I think it helps them to become real for them, right? So they can kind of, you know, because most of them are not going to have a diplomatic crisis in their life, uh, but they get to experience that. You know, the 1914 crisis is a good example because, you know, the kind of historical narrative we have that my students will often get as well. It's like, oh, look at all these idiots bumbling into a war. But then I've designed a game which is actually you know, in, in essence, quite solvable, but you realize it's not so easy now that there's six different teams with competing objectives. Yes, in principle, we could solve this quite easily. Now we realize that we're experiencing it. It's harder than you think. And, and crucially, at the end of it, some countries are always coming out worse than the others. So even though you might understand the problem, somebody understands it better than you and is able to capitalize on that. And so they can experience that kind of thing. I think just as a final point on this, when you start to getting into the kinetic realm and stuff, games have a lot more validity because we have a much better understanding of the rules of kinetic activity and so there you can actually use them much more fundamentally for training you can actually literally be like like there's a process we want you to understand we'll have you game it and you'll understand that process better and it's building those mind muscles that's right yeah yeah it's a synthetic experience what how do you do this i want to see how the game represents this okay so you're trying to alleviate their suffering through mass physical messaging drops leaflets okay and the messenger is coalition IDF assets. Grammatically, that's not quite clear to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm warning and hitting them at the same time. Right, so, so that's the carrot and stick approach. Maybe that makes sense. What did you score? Uh, six. Six. That's not bad. I've got six. How you doing? Minus one. Oh, oh no. We played actually a, a couple of hands. So, you know, Andrea ended up with minus one there. She, she actually did much better on the other one. I did much worse on, on, on the other hand. I think I ended up with zero or minus one. The real takeaway for me is that, you know, because, okay, I, I, I'm not military, but I did communications for a living. You can go in with a really thinking you've got a really great idea, 
but circumstances in this case mm. the gameplay where the cards fall and force your hand it, yeah. it, it just reminded me of that old maxim you know you, you don't make the perfect the enemy of the good you've got to do your best with what you've got because at some point one of the other four players might force you to actually lay a set of cards down and then if you've not got a decent set and, and that that does actually i think probably reflect reality and you change your mind james that's great um, oh, yeah. mike <laughs> you, you've been involved in plenty of war gaming with students it can get quite heated i understand oh yes um i mean rather similar to james's experience there i remember we used to do a, a war game on the 1908 bosnian crisis at the open university in the summer school and there would be eight teams of 10 people in a team so there would be a whole cabinet in in britain a cabinet in germany a cabinet in russia making decisions against each other in the 1908 bosnia crisis in separate rooms and they didn't know what was going on in other rooms so it put them under a lot of pressure and i remember on one occasion i, I walked into the uh, the Russian room to find uh, the German room rather uh, to find uh, the Kaiser and von Moltke um, <laughs> s scuffling with each other near the window over a message. One of them was, was about to send a message and the other one said you can't send it and they ended up fighting over whether this piece of paper was going to go out of the door. Well, let's bring back Captain Eugene Morgan, Assistant Head of Defence Wargaming at Strategic Command. Uh, Eugene, can you give us some examples of how wargaming is used inside the UK's armed forces right now? So it will range quite considerably from the tactical level, which would be evaluation of COAs, production of insights and observations and evidence that will then allow individuals at tactical and operational level to make judgments, right the way through to the more strategic campaign level wargame activities that will evaluate how campaigns are operating uh, how we should be balancing our force design activities and then looking at how those force elements should be used in combination, not only in a national level, but in international and coalition activities. And do you have a favourite war game? I particularly like the cyber war game that I've played on several occasions now. It's it's really quite a fascinating tool and it's more education and training but it it sort of it helps to understand how cyber uh, and cyber hygiene and resilience is used within defense and more broadly and and it's definitely something i think you know helps people understand how to remain secure in a in an increasingly cyber and digital space so how does that game work it's a DSTL designed game, but it basically offers a range of different scenarios about how cyber and cyber resilience can be used in in defence and national security and 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 the defence of critical national infrastructure. It's a manual game, and it's adjudicated by you know somebody who has got experience of how these techniques and technologies would operate. Really fascinating, fun to play and definitely throws up a bit of competitive spirit in, in, in the players that when I've seen it used. And Mike, um, do you have a favourite war game? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's, it's a very old one, but it's not actually a war game. So the, the 1976 Sterling crisis that I was involved in uh, mm. gaming, um, we wrote something on it with a colleague, Martin Birch, when I was at Manchester. And the, the thing is that Sterling crisis was a big cabinet issue that went on for two or three weeks with the Callaghan government in 1976. And the cabinet leaked like a sieve. And so a bunch of journalists, which is quite unusual at the time, recreated the cabinet meetings and filmed it. And 
so they actually recreated pretty accurately what the cabinet really did. And Martin Birch and I, we wrote a, a, a game based on that. And so they'd play out the cabinet problem and then we'd show them the film of, of pretty well what happened. And the reason it was my favourite is that when you did the debrief and then you showed them this half-hour film of what more or less happened in the cabinet, you could see light bulbs going on above heads all around the room as they recognised either things they did say or things they might have said or things they wish they had said mm. towards the final outcome. It was, a, it was a little gem of a game, actually, because they could simulate it, then they could see a version of what really happened and you could do it all in less than a day. Eugene, obviously you can't reveal too much detail, but can you give us any idea of the kind of scenarios the UK is wargaming or has wargamed in recent years? Well, those have exactly as you said, you know, the detail is probably um, beyond the conversation today. But the sort of things that we've been looking at is force development and how we build future forces, uh, what capabilities we would need in order to work within national and coalition construct and also how we would evaluate campaigns uh, and and the activities that we need to draw on if we are looking at not just a defense related activity but say cross government and and where we're working with partners and allies in those other departments mike if a military or a government sets out on a war game it might of course not like the results it sees uh, no, it might it may not, and that's uh, that's in a way is what they've got to accept because the game is all to do with just trying different assumptions, testing different assumptions, then changing the parameters and testing them again. And so there were many many games played during the Cold War within NATO to say, well, what would happen if NATO and the Warsaw Pact actually went to war together? And that was gamed out hundreds of times. And one of the things that came out again and again was that it was very difficult to make the people playing those games press the nuclear button. They did anything to avoid it and. Even when they had no alternative, they still wouldn't do it. And then sometimes the games were, were then uh, fixed so that you had to press the button to see what would happen next. And mm. so lots of games were played in which, OK, they said, we know you don't want to do this, but now we're going to make you do it to see what the next outcome is. And again, they play that hundreds of times. And, you know, the thing that came out from that is that although the concept of limited nuclear war does make sense in global terms, it doesn't make any sense in European terms. Because once the button is pressed in Europe... The, the net result is the devastation of Europe, however the rest of the thing goes. And that, mm. again, came out again and again and again. And that's one of the things that, that games can actually show. Uh, they don't predict the future, but they show the way human beings will tend to react with enough repetitions over time where you change the parameters a little bit and human beings still react in more or less the same way. That tells you something about the ways in which reality might then play out if, God forbid, you know, one or arrives at those dire moments of history. And Eugene, understanding the limits of war games is important here. What can't they do? Exactly, as Mike said, they, they cannot predict uh, the future. We don't look for war games to give us an answer. They provide an understanding uh, of the risks and challenges that exist. And they help us to ask better questions in the future. They don't tell us follow course A, follow course B. Yeah, Mike, it's not just us doing wargaming and we've just learnt from leaked documents via the Financial Times that a decade or so ago Russia was repeatedly wargaming the possibility of an invasion from China. 
Yes, they were. From uh, 2008 to 2014, a whole series of war games are believed to have taken place. Now, although the, the Russian political establishment says that we have a, an unbreakable relationship with China, and Putin has been saying that now since 2008, the Russian military are aware of the sheer geopolitical incentive for China at some point this year, 10 years time, 20 years time, 50 years time to take Russian territory in the Far East. Um, and there'd be a lot of, of, of obvious advantages to the Chinese in doing that. And so, like any sensible uh, uh, military machine, they game out, what would it look like? What would we do? How might mm -hmm. it develop? And they're just trying to give themselves ideas about the sort of the way in which a crisis might unfold so that as and when a crisis or if and when such a crisis begins, they're not confronted just with a blank sheet of paper. OK, well, we'll dig into the future of war gaming shortly and the possibilities technology holds. But in case your interest in trying out war gaming has been piqued, let's hear from someone who took it up after their military career. Anna Nettleship served five years of active duty in the US Army. She's now a leading expert in war games and their development as the managing director of the King's College London War Gaming Network in the School of Security Studies. A lot of the war games I've been on, I, I can't can't give it a lot of details on, but uh, but one sort of semi detailist story that that always comes to mind is a uh, it was actually a nuclear war game that uh, that I was consulting on, and there was a, a nuclear expert who was the the top decision maker within the game. He made a specific point to come over and thank me for coming and say he was glad I was there, and I said that's great, and he said I want you to know before we get started, that there are no circumstances under which I would ever authorize nuclear use. And that's just always the wrong choice. And I just, just so you know, I will never do that. And I said, okay, just good to know. And so we sat down and it was a, it was an eight move game and uh, we got six moves in and uh, he sort of mulled over everything we'd said and leaned forward and said, um, I think we need to deploy nuclear weapons. And then he looked right at me and I didn't say a word. It was sort of a know yourself moment that I, I, I hope it was as, as impactful for him as it was for me. But seeing that happen was a real light bulb moment for me that I don't think he'd ever really he'd never been put in a situation where he felt like he had to make a terrible decision. Absolutely fascinating. And you are designing a war game as part of your PhD research, I understand. Can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, so what I'm doing is, uh, so it's an analytic war game, but a big chunk of my dissertation is on the development of counterinsurgency doctrine for the war in Iraq. So I had an actual historical scenario that I could design into the methodology. So I wrote a scenario around the March through May 2008 period of the surge in Iraq and uh, mm. picked the two, we call them key inflection points, sort of the two big kinetic engagements that happened in that period. I, so I did a, a lot of analysis on the back end to see which, which were the places, if you put new decisions, that would have the greatest possible impact on changing the strategic environment after the surge. So the research question around the game was, uh, was basically, you could sum it up as saying, could the military have fixed what happened in Iraq? So the surge mm. was an example of an operational success. The military element of the surge outperformed even its even its highest proponents were still surprised at how well the new approach worked. So in terms of establishing security and stability, which you had to do before you could do anything else, the surge was an incredible success, but the war was not. And so as part of, of my, I give participants uh, an intentionally very frustrating game where I didn't let them affect these other lines of effort, but gave them complete creative freedom and complete oversight and all the historical details we now know about what did and didn't work and let them input new decisions at these two major kinetic engagements that happened during that period to see if they could, could you improve? Could we have done better with these things? And um, 
And I can say with, through no fault of my players who all did an excellent job and, and were incredibly creative in how they approached this, both times we did it, it did not get better. It actually got much worse. Oh, really? So you didn't come up with an answer then? Well, so I came up with a, with a, well, the a set of data no. that supported my <laughs> hypothesis that, that if the hypothesis is no, you can't just run a military line of effort. You do need to incorporate these other things into your strategy. You need to make sure that you're putting effort, you know, on your economic side and on the political side. If you if you're willing to make some changes or apply different aspects of diplomacy, things like that, that those are vital elements of how we fight. The, the issue wasn't military decision making. It was something else. So for someone who, who might be interested but hasn't done any war gaming, how might they try it out? It's much easier to get involved if you have someone who knows what they're doing and a little bit of formal instruction is a great way to get involved with the theories around war gaming. Otherwise, I would really recommend looking for sort of more informal um, opportunities to get involved in simulations. So at King's, we have a crisis simulation that the students run every year. So it's not a module and it's not it's not a research project. They just do it for fun, but they put a lot of effort into it. It's this huge thing that anyone can sign up for and you can come and Last year, they had this gigantic strategic competition thing where you could just come in and, and they'd say, all right, you're on the Pakistan team now. And a huge crisis has happened and you get to model the government. And it's a great opportunity for a very fun way to get into it. And if the methodology is going to appeal to you, doing it is the best way to see and say, oh, wow, this is actually really great. Like, I see how this could be really useful. So if you can't get into a formal institution, I would definitely say there's there's usually there are often hobby clubs. Uh, like UK Fight Club, or there'll be something informal run by the students, like the crisis simulation at an institution. And that's a great way to just get involved with people who know how to run something, get in on the ground, do it. And then if you like it, those are usually people to talk to, to say, I want to do more of this. Where can I find more? And they can usually point you in the right direction. Really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting. Anna Nettleship, thanks. All right, great. Thank you. Well, let's finish now by talking about the future of wargaming and hear briefly again from Eugene's boss, the Director of Joint Warfare, Rear Admiral Andrew Betton. The evolution of wargaming um, is benefiting, as many other areas, uh, with rapid uh, development of new technological tools. Um, there is still a place for the basic style of wargaming and the, the tabletop exercise, which is effectively a, a recorded and analysed debate and discussion. But some of the tools out there to um, enhance the, the simulation element, but critically to speed up the analysis, the, the use of AI to conduct six months worth of analysis, perhaps in a, in, a, in a matter of hours, enables us to uh, draw much greater utility from more gaming as we move forward. Eugene, how rapidly is technology changing things and what technology for war gaming most excites you? Everything. <laughs> There's, I think there is, I believe, an opportunity to draw from every aspect of of technology, of simulation, of modelling, to draw something forward into how future wargaming would look. I'm particularly excited about how maybe we can speed up the process of designing and then delivering and analysing wargames. And that allows you know, technologies such as large language models and AI to have a part to play in developing what might become a really exciting, quick way of taking a problem, understanding the context of that problem, designing a game, producing the actual game itself, executing it, 
doing the analysis and feeding back. And I think maybe what we would expect to see in the future is fewer large, very complex games, but many more smaller, faster games, which accumulates to give us knowledge uh, rather than trying to give us knowledge in a single event. Mike, we, we mentioned your first book being about war games, which weren't even called war games back then. Could you have imagined then that people now might be doing these simulations across the world from each other, wearing virtual reality goggles? No, and that's one of the, the great advantages, as Eugene said and his boss said, you know, the ability to bring people in from different places. You don't all have to be in one location. But also the, the speed of feedback. I mean, the, the games that I started playing in the 1960s, 70s were very analogue. Everything was on paper and you people would react and then that would go onto paper. Now the feedback loop, the consequences that you can feed in are astonishing. Plus AI gives you an, an immensely sensitive tool in which you can explore scenarios with great veracity and speed and you can condense the realities of three weeks into 10 minutes and that gives you an ability a very powerful tool to investigate the scenario and explore all of the different aspects of it i could never have imagined that happening when mm -hmm. i started doing this sort of thing Technology costs, people and effort costs. There will be people who wonder if in tight times that costs can be spared for theoretical exercise in offices rather than actual exercises on Salisbury Plain or Estonia. Eugene, how do you convince colleagues that it's worth putting time and effort into wargaming? Because it saves money and potentially saves lives. By better understanding how we are spending our money and being clear about how that money will contribute to military outcomes, we can be more efficient in the way that we make the decisions. Better evidence, better decisions, I think leads to, to better defence. Great talking to you, Captain Eugene Morgan. Mike, thank you both for your time. That is all for now. Professor Michael Clark and I will be back with another SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can stay up to date with all the latest defence news from the UK and around the world on our website, forces.net. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. On air, online, on the app, on FM, and DAB Plus throughout the UK. This is BFBS, BFBS, the Forces Station. Station.